theyeshiva.net. Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for joining our webinar. Tonight is Rosh Chodesh. Tonight is a new Jewish month. It's a new moon. It's a new moon. It's new hope. Tonight is a very auspicious night in the Chabad calendar and in the life of the Rebbe. Now, the Rebbe had a dream, and the dream was to bring Mashiach. And when Mashiach comes, there'll be no more war, no more suffering, no more sickness. All families be, will be reunited, and godliness will be revealed in this world. How do we bring Mashiach? By changing ourselves and changing the world around us. But can we really change ourselves? So tonight, Rabbi Yossi Jacobson, who needs no introduction, he's arguably the best and finest Jewish English English Jewish speaker in the world. He's going to take us on a journey based on the discourse by Yishlach Yeshua from the Rebbe, a very mystical discourse, which Rabbi Yossi Jacobson will discuss. Can we change ourselves? Can we change who we are? So Rabbi Yossi, thank you so much for making the time. We look forward to the journey. Thank you so, so much, Rabbi Masinta, my dear friend. Just give me a thumbs up. You could see me and hear me, Yes. Okay. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so, so much. So first of all, it's an honor. It's a thrilling privilege to be here with each and every single one of you. So many beloved friends in the South African Jewish community. Thank you, Rabbi Masinter and your wonderful staff for creating and putting together this wonderful program of learning and this great evening. It's a thrilling privilege to always address my dearest beloved friends in South African community, one of the greatest communities in the world in terms of your innovative creativity, your love for Yiddishkeit, and equally important, the unity and the love of the Jewish people in South Africa for each other. I live in a little shtetl called New York. Some of you may have heard from it. And we have a few minyanim and a few shuls. But it's not always easy for us to get on with each other. So I always cherish an opportunity to speak to this extraordinary, warm, hospitable, passionate, fiery Jewish community of South Africa. And thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for the privilege of being together with all of you for this night of studying Torah and emotional and spiritual growth. I know that this program, this evening of learning is dedicated to Rachmiel. Ben Rafal, Ronnie Bass, whose yard site was today. Thank you so, so much. And may Ronnie remain an eternal source of blessing and inspiration to the family, to all of his loved ones, friends, neighbors, community members, to all of our communities and to all of the Jewish people. It's dedicated to Moshe Ben Yaakov Nachum, to Yocheved, Batchayim Avram Jesselowski, to Aaron Ben Ephraim, and to Alan Greenblow. Thank you so, so much for your friendship, for your partnership, for making all of this happen, for bringing so many of our brothers and sisters together this evening. And thank you, Rabbi Masinter, for leading this project. So, as the rabbi, as the good rabbi just mentioned, and I also want to mention everyone who's watching, virtually. <laughs> I know everybody's watching virtually, but everybody was watching in South Africa and across the globe. Welcome, welcome to everybody in the different time zones, and thank you so much for joining us. What we're going to be exploring today is an extraordinary Hasidic discourse that was presented by the Lubavitcher Rebbe in the summer of 1976. Just a little context, a little historical background is always uh, helpful, and that is the founder of Chabad was Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. He's known as the Alter Rebbe. He authored the Tanya and the Shulchan Aruch Harav. He was born in 1745 and passed away in 1812. And uh, actually soon in a few days, the 19th of Kislev is the famous Chagagula, the day that he was liberated from Tsarist imprisonment in 1790, uh, 1798, a couple of years ago. And he founded the Hasidic dynasty known as Chabad Lubavitch. It was his tradition that he instituted to deliver what's known Maimarim on Shabbos, on holidays, or special days during the year, 
deep, profound, extraordinary presentations that dealt with the spiritual science of the universe, the spiritual science of the human soul, and the spiritual science of Yiddishkeit. So it really takes us into a deeper layer of experiencing and understanding Judaism in a very sophisticated and profound way that relates not just to practical law and ritual, which is the foundation of Jewish life, we call it halacha, but also to really have appreciation of the, of the inner, what you would call my divine physics of the cosmos and the divine physics of the human brain and the human soul and the divine physics of Yiddishkeit. And this was developed over seven generations of spiritual masters that began with the Alter Rebbe all the way down to the seventh Chabad leader, which was, of course, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rebbe Menachem Mendel Schneerson. So his custom was Shabbos, Yom Tif, special days. He would deliver a mimer, a discourse, that was usually based on the teachings of his father-in-law and his father, all the way back to the founder of Chabad, Alter Rebbe, whose teachings are based on his own teacher, the Magad of Mizrich, and his teacher, the Baal Shem Tev, the founder of the Hasidic movement who passed away in 1760 on Shavuos, and the teachings of the great Jewish philosophers and mystics, people like the Rambam, people like the Arizal, people like Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, people like the Maharal and Shalah, just to mention a few of the pivotal scholars who shaped many of the ideas that were developed in the Kabbalistic and Hasidic traditions over the centuries. This particular discourse that I'm going to be exploring with you tonight is, as I said, from the summer of 76, 1976. It's a very famous summer in Jewish history. Some of you may know what I'm referring to or may remember it. It's, of course, the summer of Antebi, when Yoni Netanyahu, the brother of Bibi Netanyahu, led the Israeli commando to Idi Amin's, Idi Amin's Uganda and Tebi, where the Israeli Jewish hostages were being held captive and in a stunning raid liberated so many of those captives, something that stunned the world, stunned the Jewish people, and really was one of the great miracles of our generation, July 4th, 1976. This mimer of the Rebbe was said just, I think, one Shabbos or two Shabbos earlier, I don't have the spiritual vision to connect events. I'm not that type of person. Those who know don't say. Those who say those who say don't know. I'm just mentioning just the history of the time. It's just interesting to note. This was Shabbos Shlach. The Shabbos when the Torah portion was Shlach. The Lubavitcher Rebbe during his Fabreng and his Shabbos afternoon gathering delivered a Hasidic discourse among many other talks that began with the words Vayishlach Yehoshua. Some of you I know have studied this text inside over the last days or weeks. I'm not going to be reading the text inside. You're welcome to read it on your own, to learn it on your own. I'm going to be discussing some of the pinnacle and uh, moving and inspiring ideas that he brought up in that discourse, which he based on a discourse of the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, that was said 200 years earlier in a little town in Liazhne in Belarus, published in his magnum opus, Lekutei Torah, Parsha Shlach. We all know that the Jewish people have a promised land, it's called the land of Israel, Eretz Israel. But it was not easy for the Jewish people to get into the promised land. Abraham was promised the land. Isaac was promised the land. Jacob was promised the land. Moses was promised the land. Moses tried 40 years to get into the land, but he never did. He never made it into the promised land. He passed away and was interred in Petra on Jordan on the eastern side of the Jordanian River. But his disciple Joshua is the one who led the Jewish people into the land of Israel. The Torah tells the famous story of the spies. Moses sent 12 scouts to survey the land, to look at it, to examine it. They did. They came back. But instead of motivating the people to enter the land, they dissuaded them from entering the land. They basically robbed the Jewish people from the willpower and the enthusiasm and the faith that they can do it. And instead, hysteria and panic and despair overtook the Jewish nation. An entire night, it was the night of Tisha B'av, they wept that we're going to go to the land of Israel just to be slain. We, our wives, our children will all be murdered. As a result of that, they stayed in the desert for 40 years. There's a famous line that a wise man said. He said, whether you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're probably right. If you believe you can't, 
you're right. And if you believe you can, you're also right. The Jewish people at that time believed that they can't. They were right. They could not. So God said, you can't. Just stay here. They stayed for 40 years. And they died in the desert. Moses died and was interred with them. And it was only Joshua, who was one of the 12 spies, who led the Jews into Israel. But he also sent two spies. The opening of the book of Joshua tells the story how Yehoshua Benun, the disciple of Moses, decided to send two spies to Jericho, Yericho, to also survey the city and get a feel of what's happening in the land, to prepare the fledgling nation, the new nation, to enter and conquer the promised land. Now, it's fascinating because Moses sends 12 spies. 12. Joshua sends two spies. Moses, God did not tell him to do it. God tells him, Shlach lecha. it's up to you. Moses wanted to do it. So Hashem said, you can do it, but I'm not telling you to do it. It's not a mitzvah. Shlach lecha, as Rashi says, I'm not going to tell you to do it. If you want, you have my permission. I'm not going to stop you. Indeed, it turned out catastrophic. It was a dismal failure. The spies came back, as I said, and dissuaded the entire nation from going into the land. Joshua was told by God to send the spies. The logic is obvious. Would he go and do the same thing his master did when he realized what a failed mission it was? Why would he get involved? You know, they said, there's an expression, remember your grandmother would say that? You don't take a healthy person and put him into a sick bed. Why send spies and potentially repeat the same disaster? God told Joshua to send spies, only two. Now Moses' spies surveyed the whole land. Joshua's spies only went into Yericho. But Jericho, Yericho, was called Man'ula Shel Eretz Yisrael, the lock of the land of Israel. It was like the lock. If you open up Jericho, the door is open, you can conquer the home. If Jericho remains locked and shuttered, you will not be able to go into the house. Jericho was like the entrance, the vista, the portal, the lock that takes you into the land. They came to Jericho. They stayed in the hotel of a famous woman named Rachav, later would convert to Judaism, and she would marry Joshua. Rachav would marry Joshua. That's a separate story. It's not for tonight. And Rachav hid the spies because the king sent emissaries to abduct them and arrest them and kill them. She hid them in the roof. She lowered them down the wall through the window, the back window, outside of the wall of Jericho, and saved their lives. And Rachav told them that everybody in this country is in awe of the Jewish people. Everybody knows the story. You guys have nothing to fear. And this really gave the Jews the courage, the extra dosage of stamina to be able to enter into the promised land and conquer it and settle it, which took 14 years under the leadership of Joshua. So let's remember, Moses sends 12, Joshua sends 2. Moses is not commanded by God. Joshua is commanded by God. Moses' spies go through the whole land. Joshua spies only go to Jericho. Moses' spies are not successful. Joshua's spies are successful. This is a famous biblical story in the Hebrew Bible. The first story of Moses is in the book of Numbers and Shlach. The story about Joshua is in the opening of the book of Joshua, and it's the Haftorah of Shlach. But now we go to the next step. Every story in the Torah is not just a physical story that happened at a certain point in life. It's also a timeless story that transpires in our psyches and brains throughout millennia, which means every single story in the Torah captures a certain profound truth that relates to our inner emotional and psychological state. And therefore, it's not limited to the milieu in history when the story transpired, but rather it continues throughout, our, throughout the centuries because it represents allegorically those issues, struggles, dilemmas that each of us have to deal with in our own lives. Conquering the promised land is no exception. There is the physical story of the Jewish people passing, crossing the Jordan River to go into the land. That's one story. But there's also the emotional, spiritual story. Doesn't everybody have a promised land that you want to conquer? Don't you have goals that you want to achieve? Don't you have a destination that you want to reach? Don't you have those elements in your life that you feel you have to conquer in order to become the person that you're capable of becoming. Each one of us has a promised land. We all have a collective promised land. It's called Eretz Yisrael, our eternal homeland for eternity. 
the land which one day will home be the home of all the Jewish people with the coming of Mashiach speedily in our days. And today is already the home of close to six, to of, of, of almost 7 million Jews, 6.6 million Jews. And whenever I hear that number of Jews living in Israel, it always triggers such a profound emotion because when you hear the number 6.6 million Jews living in the Holy Land of Israel, 75 years after the liberation of Auschwitz. It's a very, very moving and profound experience. And it's important to think about this, that for thousands of years, our ancestors dreamt that they're going to one day come back to Israel. was the end of every Seder and the end of Yom Kippur. Throughout millennia, and it was in our generation, our generation, our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation, that millions, millions of Jews are now living in the land of Israel, but we're still in exile. And when Mashiach comes, all the Jews will come to Israel. So there is the national collective promised land, but there's also your individual promised land. Everybody has their own Eretz Yisrael, whether you're in Johannesburg or you're in Cape Town, whether you're in Jerusalem or you're in New York, whether you're in Moscow or you're in Hong Kong. Wherever you are in the world, you have your own promised land. There are your goals when it comes to your marriage to your happiness, to your family life, to your vocation, to your finances, to your spiritual, emotional, psychological, physical, financial, mental goals. Everybody has those obstacles we need to overcome, those roadblocks that really obstruct our journeys. I want to get into my promised land. What is your promised land? And here we have the two sets of spies that Moses sent and Joshua sent. And there was a big difference. Moses' spies surveyed the whole land. Joshua's spies, remember, surveyed Jericho. What's the difference? What does a spy do? A spy, a scout, goes into the land, checks out what's happening, tries to see the lay of the land, tries to eat the foods, socialize with the inhabitants, with the natives, get a flavor of the zeitgeist, of the atmosphere. There's a German expression, Spitzenfingergefühl. It's called the sixth sense. Get a sixth sense of what's happening. The strategies, find out about the military, find out about the fortresses, see the roads, understand what is going on in this country so that we one day should be able to enter it and conquer it. That's what the spy does. Now let's take this from the physical from the world of the military to the world of psychology. What does it mean that I send a spy into the land that I want to conquer? It basically means, and this is a very profound idea, self-awareness. Self-awareness. That's what the spy does. You're not just going to come into a blind land. It's not going to work. You know why? Your enemy will defeat you right away. You need to know his strong points. You need to know his weak points. You need to know where he staged his troops. You need to know the vulnerabilities. You need to know where you can enter. You need to know where you can't enter. You need to know where you're going to encounter the greatest resistance, and you're going to have to prepare for that. That's what espionage is all about. For those who are familiar with espionage literature, espionage documentaries, espionage films, whatever it is, but that's what it's about. What is it in the psychological life? It's to quote Plato, know thyself. It's called self-awareness. Self-awareness is a blessing. There's no growth without self-awareness. Because without self-awareness, I don't even know what's happening in myself. You know, somebody was just telling me about his father. Just today, I was got a, somebody was driving me somewhere, and he was telling me about his father. He's a young man, a very sweet kid. And he tells me, my father is a nice person. But almost every night, he loses it. He gets so angry, and he screams at everybody. Screams at every child, and even the young children, they become terrified. I asked the boy, what does your mother do? He says, my mother tries to tell him to relax. And he turns to my mother and he says, who asked you? I say, so how does it make you feel? He says, my father's a nice guy, but he just loses it. I say, why does he lose it? What's going on inside of him? And he says, when my father becomes aware of that, he'll become much healthier. <laughs> From the mouth of babes, right? This is a little kid. What's his point? His point is, we have so much going on in ourselves. 
we get angry, we get mad, we get scared, we get glad, we get into bad moods, we feel empty. Sometimes we feel on top of the world. Self-awareness is the ability to really tune in. Are you ready to find out what is happening inside of you? Can you listen to the cues of your body? Can you figure out, at least try to figure out what makes you tick? What triggers you so deeply? What is going on in your brain? What are you reacting to? These are not always conscious stuff. They're usually unconscious. And that's why it's so difficult. And maybe I've spent my whole life suppressing or repressing so many of these thoughts and emotions. I'm not capable of awareness. You know, sometimes people come to me to consult about different things. And I always ask the first question, not always, but often I'll ask them one question. Before I answer you, let me know one thing. Do you want to hear the truth? Or do you want me to tell you something you would like to hear? And of course, what do most people say? Of course, I want to hear the truth. But when you tell them the truth, (laughs) they often stop talking to you. How many people want to hear the truth? Do I want to hear the truth? Do you want to hear the truth? I say I want to hear the truth, but do I really want to hear the truth? Or I just want to hear what I want to hear. (laughs) Just a little bit of the truth. Well, our conscious brains filters 99% of the information that flows into us and flows inside of us. And it only lets us experience just a glimmer of a glimmer, just a tiny, tiny fraction of what's happening, that which it feels that our conscious self can deal with. But everything else is relegated to the subconscious or the superconscious sellers of the brain. So the concept of sending spies is you have to be able to send your own emissaries. In other words, your own forces inside of your promised land to see what is going on, what is happening, where is the resistance, where is the trauma, where is the pain, where are the wounds, what are the fears, what are the insecurities, what are those unresolved elements in my psyche that still trigger me and ultimately control my life and block my passage into my promised land. Why can't I have a good marriage? Why am I always getting angry at my husband? Why am I always getting angry at my wife? Why can't there be intimacy? Why is there no trust? What is it that I'm afraid of? What is it that I'm recalling? Of course, I can always blame her. I can always blame him. That's easy. My wife is this. My husband is this. But that's not going to get you anywhere. Because you point a finger at somebody, you're pointing three fingers at yourself. The bigger question I have to ask is, what is happening inside of me? I should mention the fact that the world just lost Dr. Aaron Beck. Dr. Beck was 100 years old, passed away a few days ago. And he's considered the founder of cognitive therapy, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And Dr. Beck dedicated his whole life, most of his life, to basically teach people that we don't react to other people. We react to our thoughts about other people. So when you say something to me or your spouse says something to you or your child says something to you or your employer or your brother or your mother or your sister or your father says something to you and you react in a very intense way, whether you're aware of it or not aware of it, you're not reacting to what they said or to what they did. You're reacting to how you process what they said and what they did and how you process what they said and what they did is based on your thoughts. And if if you could confront your thoughts, if you could talk to your thoughts, if you could listen to your thoughts, a lot can be changed. Now I know today, especially, there's a lot of different forms of therapy and CBT has been embraced by many and disputed by some. And the truth is, in every one of these systems, there are tremendous gems. And in every other, but not every system works for everybody. And today we recognize that trauma exists on many, many different levels. And sometimes cognitive therapy will completely be ineffective. The body keeps the score. And therefore, there are so many other forms of healing today, but that's beyond the realms of tonight's lecture. But I'm pointing out here, this is where spies come in. Because spies basically have to go in and find out what is happening. After that, they can open the doors for me to come in and conquer my promised land. And it's here the Rebbe makes the vital distinction 
of two sets of spies, the spies of Moses and the spies of Joshua. There are the spies that God tells Joshua to send, and there are the spies that Moshe sends on his own. God does not tell him to send. What's the difference between the two? Give me a cup of water. Just a cup of water. Thank you. Thank you. So here we go. This We come now to a fundamental distinction of the Tanya. The Tanya, you probably know, is the basic work of Hasidic Chabad philosophy. It was authored, thank you, by the founder of Chabad, Rabbi Shnei Zaman of Liadi, who I mentioned at the beginning of the class. The Tanya was published in 1796. What is the Tanya? It's a small work. It's not a big work. It's a small work. It's basically a map. It maps out the soul. Just like there are x-rays for the body, the Tanya is an x-ray of the soul. What does the soul look like? What are its building blocks? What make it tick? What is it allergic to? What does it want? Now, you might say that map should be different for every person. It's true. The map is very individual because each one, every person has his or her own unique sequence of DNA molecules, which is God's individual imprint that makes you, you, and makes me, me. As the Talmud says in Sanhedrin 38, no two people look alike and no two people think alike. And it's not a mistake. It's intentional because every person must say, for me, the world was created. There's something I have to contribute to the universe and to the cosmos that nobody before me or after me could make that contribution. And it's all about that unique, distinctive individual light that you and I bring to the universe because you are a unique manifestation of Hashem in this world. But in order to get to understand your uniqueness, the Tanya gives us a blueprint of how the soul works, what the soul is made up of. It's like a spiritual x-ray of the soul. In the Tanya, the Bala Tanya, the author of the Tanya, makes an incredibly important distinction between two aspects of self, which touch on the big question, can I change me (laughs) or I can't change me? And the question is, what is me? (laughs) Who is this me that I could change or that I can't change? And I'm going to quote his words and then explain them. And he makes a distinction between a part of the self that he calls garments, levushim, garments, and a part of the self that he calls Midas, etzem, the core of you, not the garments of you. Garments you can exchange. If I don't like my jacket, it gets dirty. I don't have to wear it. I can take it off. Even if I'm wearing it because I can't take it off, I don't confuse my jacket or my tie or my glasses with me. Yes, they're part of me. They Hopefully they're nice. I hope you like it. Actually, this is a kapot, it's not a jacket. But they're still garments. They're alien to me. It's not your essence. And you could change them. But that's not the same with your arms and your legs and your heart and your kidneys. Now, there too, we have today transplants. We have today upgrades. We have grafting. I mean, there's a lot, but it's medical procedures. It's complicated. It's not changing your tie or changing your outfit or your skirt or your gown. What does this mean in a person's life? There are two different parts of a person's personality. There is what the Tanya calls your midas and what the Tanya calls your levushim. And I'm going to explain what that is. There are inner emotions, inner motivations, inner fears that I experience, not by choice. It's part of who I am. It's part of my personality. It's part of my nature and it's part of my nurture. Then there is a part known as machshava, dibur, and maisa. Thoughts, words, and actions. Says the Alter Rebbe, when Judaism demands of us to work on ourselves, to repair ourselves, to change ourselves, you have to always make a distinction because if not, you are going to get so frustrated and you're going to live and wallow in guilt and shame and despair for something that you're not even guilty of. People get upset at themselves constantly that I have this and this emotion. Don't get upset you and yourself that you have this and this emotion. 
I have to be able to accept that there's certain things in me that are not easily changeable. They're not suits that I could take on, put on and take off. It's a very painful acceptance, but it's critically important because people spend so much time wallowing in self-loathing and self-guilt and self-shame. Why am I feeling this way? Why can't I feel this way? Why am I being triggered? You know what? At this point in life, there's nothing you can do about that. We'll soon see. There's a lot of work to do in this. But it's not something you can snap your fingers and you can say, I don't want to be like that, and therefore I'm not going to be like that. And this is so important, especially people who take religion seriously. Because when you read Torah, you read literature, you read Gemara, you read Medrash, you read books of Musr, ethics. You read books of Hashkafa, of Machshava, of Kabbalah, of Chsidis, of Halacha. And you see the great standards of ethics that our sages, our leaders, our rabbis, our mystics, our spiritual masters, and our great minds and hearts aspire to and try to inspire us towards. And then you look in the mirror and you say, this is so not me. (laughs) This is so inauthentic. So sometimes people fake it and they fake it till you make it. But certain things you won't fake it till you make it. I could fake being a bird, but I'm not, I'm not going to be a bird. I won't make it. I can fake being an angel, but I'm not an angel. You have to become aware of who you are and what your potential is. So people, sometimes either they become fake. Sometimes they just detach from their inner life. And sometimes they just surrender to cynicism because it just doesn't speak to them. So the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, you have to know the difference between a tzaddik and a benini. About a tzaddik, he doesn't mean a tzaddik, a good guy, a righteous person. By tzaddik, he means somebody who can actually send spies through the entire land of Israel, survey the whole inner world of your psyche to help you conquer the promised land in full. That's a unique person who has that ability to be able to extricate from themselves all the toxicity all the wounds, all the negativity, all the forces that paralyze me and take me away from my truest, divine, pure, holy essence. But for most people, that's simply not a possibility. I can't just rid myself from anything that I don't like. There are certain thoughts and instincts and emotions and fears and pains that will come up And the reason they will come up is because of all types of realities that lurk inside of me, either consciously or subconsciously. There's another set of spies, Joshua spies. And those spies go to Jericho, Yericho. Yericho comes from the word reach, which means smell, aroma. There's the smell of a person. There's the aroma of a person. And this represents your garments, your conscious, active thoughts, words, and behaviors. Here is the domain where I really have control over. When I'm experiencing a thought, when I'm triggered by something, that I have no mastery over, and you don't have to get upset about it. Now comes stage two. What do I do with that thought? Do I indulge it? Do I engage it? Do I fall prey to it? Do I allow it to take over my mouth and I become verbally abusive? I become verbally irresponsible. I go on a verbal rant. Do I allow these triggers to translate into actions that I actually do things that may be hurtful to me, to my spouse, to my children, to my loved ones, to other people around me? This is where real choice happens. These are Joshua spies that God commands you. You have to send those spies into Jericho and have good self-awareness of how your neural pathways are controlling your active thoughts. Where are they taking you? So what this means is as follows very practically. There are thoughts that come up in you constantly. Some of those thoughts are wonderful. They're blissful. Some of those thoughts are really depriving you from happiness, from serenity, from tranquility, from attachment, from connection, from purity, from holiness, from God, and from your loved ones. There are those thoughts. And I go there. 
And that's my go-to place. We know, we know today that we have millions of highways in our brain. We call them the neural pathways. And those are the go-to roads that I travel to in different circumstances. And that's where my mind goes. Comes down to that band says, God never commanded Moses to spend spies of the whole land. He doesn't give you a mitzvah that you can't feel a certain way and you have to feel a certain way. It's not possible. It's not feasible. Certain things are going to trigger you. Certain situations are going to be very difficult. And yes, you feel like screaming because in your mind, a lion just came into the room. Now I'm going to sit down with you in the therapist's office and say, the lion is not there. It's in your imagination. Yes, but when you were two years old, you saw that as a lion. And now you're 45 years old or 55 years old or 35 years old, and you don't have the ability to distinguish. That is a lion in the room, and you freeze up. Your amygdala has become frozen at three, and when this happens 30 years later, your amygdala, your the stem of your brain, your reptilian brain still freezes up. The brain has different dimensions. The tiny calls it the animal soul and the godly soul. Today in neuroscience, there is the reptilian brain, there's the amygdala, there's the limbic brain, the limbic system, and then there's the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is associated with the nefesh elokis, with the divine consciousness, the ability to see things from a larger perspective to analyze them, to dissect them, to look long-term, not short-term, to respond to things not from an instinctive reaction of fight or flight, but from a place of deep awareness and reflection. But sometimes I am stuck in my amygdala. That's how they define trauma today. My animal soul is petrified. My reptile just needs to survive. It's fight or flight. So you hear something from your wife or your husband or your teenage kid, and you lose it. You fight or you run away. You space out. You become detached. Does anybody do that in South Africa? Or you just freeze and you're not present in life. It's too painful. It's too overwhelming. You know, like the antelope that freezes because it doesn't want the cheetah to attack it. Or you fight back or you just run away. (laughs) That's what we do. My nefesh of Bahamas is responding. This happens constantly in life. Every person according to your life story, to your nature and your nurture. I can't control that. I don't have to control it. That's the good news. That Tanya says you don't have to change these things. It's part of your destiny. It's part of your vocation. It's part of your journey. At this stage, we're soon going to get to a deeper stage. But you know what you could control? You know what you have to control is? Stage two. When I can become aware where my thoughts are going to how they're translating into my verbiage and how they're translating into my behavior, those are the things I could control. And I could say, you know what? My animal soul is barking. My reptile is frightened. Okay, have compassion for it. But I really don't have to allow my thoughts to actively go there. Imagine I tell you all, don't think for the next 60 seconds, I do not want you to think about an elephant. Nobody, nobody in South Africa, there's no thoughts about an elephant. What's going to happen? You're going to think about an elephant, (laughs) right? You're going to think about an elephant. There's some thoughts you're just not in control of. They're called instinctive thoughts. One of the rabbis said, Machshave is the Spiegel von Hartz. Thoughts are a mirror of the heart. You can't just have a heart transplant and you can't have a thought transplant. There's going to be certain thoughts that come into your mind. But now is the question, what happens at the next stage? The next stage when you're living with self-awareness and when you're living with divine awareness, I could tell myself, okay, yes, these thoughts are very, very powerful and they're triggering me very deeply. But when I can identify where they're coming from, I say, you know what? I'm not going to indulge them. I'm not going to go down that path. I want to create new neural pathways. And when you do this 60 times, you create a new pathway in your brain. And after 60 times, you're already going to start changing the deeper layer. And that's where Moses' spies come in. So there's two stages in serving God. Stage number one is take control of your garments. Take control of where your thoughts go, where your words go, and where your actions go. You don't need every trigger to overtake your mind for the rest of the day, your words for the rest of the day, and your actions for the rest of the day. You don't need to. When you become a self-aware human being of what's happening in you, when your spies 
are moving around and examining and telling you, look, look, look. There is a lot, a lot of resistance there. There are many enemies there. Be careful. There are landmines. You're going to explode. You're going to implode. We need those spies surveying the promised land constantly. So Moses, who is on a higher level of Joshua, he's the face of the sun. Joshua is the face of the moon. He wants the spies in all of the land of Israel. But that often turns out to be a failure. Because when you feel that serenity will come only when you master everything and you rid yourself from all toxicity, you create an impossible situation for yourself and you don't succeed. So Joshua introduces the next step where you send the spies into Jericho to be in control of your conscious active thoughts and your conscious active words and your behaviors and say, I don't need every trigger to be translated into active thoughts and active verbiage and active behavior. And that changes everything. Yet, when we do this for a while, we allow ourselves to go into a deeper step and start changing things internally because after we accustom ourselves to certain habits of living, it starts creating real changes in our brain and in the way we respond to things and in the way we're triggered or not triggered by certain things. What then happens is we can start learning about these triggers and understanding that they are teaching us something about ourselves. They are alarm clocks. And alarm clocks are not here to destroy you and give you headaches. Alarm clocks are here to wake you up and alert you to dangers, alert you to reality, alert you to things you have to work on. And then what happens is slowly you can begin to cultivate the other spies, Moses' spies, that look through the whole land of Israel. Now, some people might think, and here we come to the final point, that controlling, guiding, lovingly your thoughts, words, and actions are really not so consequential because ultimately it's only the garments. It's not me. I want to change the me. That's not the case. And I'll give you a very interesting example for this. We all go for x-rays at times. What do x-rays accomplish? They allow the doctor, the physician, to be able to see what's happening on the inside. So you go to the dentist, and the dentist takes x-rays of your teeth. And when you look at those x-rays, it doesn't look like what your mouth and teeth look when you stand in front of the mirror or you look at somebody else's teeth. You're seeing a picture of a deeper stratum, a deeper layer. And the same is true with x-rays of the body. Now, imagine you come into a house and you walk into the kitchen, to the dining room, to the living room, to the family room, and there's a wall filled with pictures. But instead of seeing the pictures of your parents, of your siblings, of your children, of your grandchildren, all I see are pictures of the x-rays from the doctor's office. So you have them. You have pictures of their bodies, but of their x-rays. And I ask you, what are you doing? (laughs) You say, listen, I didn't want to hang up the external pictures. Those are just facades. They camouflage the truth. I wanted to hang up the real pictures. I wanted to show people the panemius, not the chitzanius, the inside, not the outside. So why would I hang up pictures that you take of somebody's face and their clothes and their tie and their mouth and their forehead and their eyes? I wanted the real picture. In my eyes, I want to remember who my child really is. (laughs) So I put up the x-rays. We all laugh because it's absurd. Why is it absurd? Because the x-rays don't tell you the picture of the person. No. The picture that you take of me on my outside, that is who I am. So why do we have x-rays? When there's an infection, when there's a cavity, when there's a virus, when there's an illness, God forbid, the x-ray helps the doctor tune into what's going on on the inside to be able to repair the person. X-rays are important. X-rays are life-saving. But you don't hang up the x-ray in the wall of your home or your office because at the end of the day, the person is the way he appears to be. This is the Rebbe's conclusion of the discourse. Your appearance is not your fake self. It's who you are. How I speak to people, how I smile to people, how I communicate with people, the mitzvahs that I do for people and for myself and for God 
my actions, my behaviors, my habits, my gestures, the charity I give, the love that I show, the words that I express, and the conscious thoughts that lead me to those words and behaviors. I choose to think about life positively, to think about myself positively, positively, to think about my loved ones positively. That's not fake. That's you. The picture of your child is the way he appears, not the x-ray. The way she appears, not the x-ray. I don't want a wedding picture of you and your bride or you and your groom with your x-rays. No, no, I want it with your tie and your suit and your gown <laughs> and your physical here. Why? It's your external physique. It's not the real. It's not what they look for in the hospital. Who cares about the outside? We care about the inside. It's that display that is the real you. We need the x-rays for repair, for examination, for reflection. But it's your machshava dibura maisa. It's your thoughts, your words, your actions, your daily interactions with yourself and people, your active thoughts, your active words, your active actions that ultimately define your life. Eddie Jaku was born, Avram Shlomo Jakobowitz, in 1920 in Leipzig, in Germany. He grew up in a classic German-Jewish family between the world wars, loved his parents. His father used to tell him as a youngster, Eddie, Avraham, Abraham, there's much more joy in giving than in taking. He was a good with his hands. When Hitler came to power in 33, he could not stay anymore in the school system in Germany. His father sent him away far. He got himself papers as a non-Jew, as a German, not as a Jew. And he went to a mechanical engineering school. He did very well. At the age of 18, November 9th, 1938, he decided to come back to Leipzig to surprise his parents for their wedding anniversary. He came into the home. Nobody was there besides his dog, Lulu. Ten SS Nazis came in. They beat him. They tortured him. The dog protected him. They shot the dog dead. And they sent him to Buchenwald. After a few months, he managed to escape from Germany. He went to Belgium. He was reunited with his family who escaped from Germany to Belgium. When Hitler invaded Belgium, he was arrested and sent on a train to Auschwitz. From the platform, he stole a hammer and a screwdriver. For nine hours, he unscrewed the floodboards of the carriage and he escaped from the train. He made it back to France and Belgium. Reunited with his family, they hid for years. In 1943, they were arrested by the Gestapo, and the entire family was placed on a train again to Auschwitz. They arrived to Auschwitz. Dr. Mengele sent both of his parents to the gas chambers immediately. Eddie Avram was sent to work. He was one of the few Jews who managed to escape Auschwitz from one of his workplaces, but then he was shot by a Polish farmer, and he realized he won't survive, so he went back on his own to Auschwitz. He joined a group of Jewish slave laborers. He went back into the camp without the Nazis detecting that he was ever absent. He was put on the death march in January 45, walked for days without food, without water. He was emaciated. He was sick. He was starving. He couldn't continue. If you stopped, they shot you on the spot. He noticed a ditch. He escaped into the ditch and lived there for six months eating raw snails. He got poisoned from the water he drank flowing through the creek. It was poisoned water, and he fell so ill he couldn't stand anymore. At this point, he just wanted to die. He crawled to a nearby road, hoping, waiting for a Nazi soldier to come by and shoot him and take him out of his misery. An American tank came, put him in a blanket, sent him to the hospital. In the hospital, he was unconscious for a week. But then a nurse told him when he woke up that probably he won't survive. He's too ill. 65% chance he'll die. He survived. Six days later, he was out of the hospital. He bought himself a ticket to Belgium, hoping he would be reunited with somebody in his family. He met his sister, Henny, who survived Auschwitz. But he had nothing. They lost their family. A few months later, he met another survivor, a girl named Flora. They got married in Belgium. They relocated to Sydney, Australia. He was a miserable, broken man, he said. 
But when his first child was born in 1950, Michael, he said, my happiness returned to me in abundance. And at that moment, I made a decision. I'm going to live a life dedicated to kindness, make people smile. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to celebrate life. I'm going to be polite, sensitive, and empathetic. It's the life he lived. Last year, he turned 100, and he decided it's time to write a book. Don't you think so? At 100, he published his memoirs. He published his book. He's probably one of the oldest authors in history. <clears throat> Moses wins the prize. Moses wrote the Torah when he was 120. Eddie was 100. Last year, after his birthday, the book became a bestseller. You may have seen it, titled The Happiest Man on Earth. Avram Jacobowitz, Eddie Jakku, is the self-proclaimed happiest man on earth. <clears throat> he says, tomorrow will come. You have to enjoy today. For him, one friend is worth the world. And looking into the eyes of his child is the joy of his life. Very moving, moving book. Very moving memoir. And it really inspired millions. Just a few days ago, on the sixth day of Cheshvan, 5782, October, October 12th, 2021, Avram Jacobowitz, Eddie Jaku, returned his soul to its maker in Sydney. The happiest man on earth was reunited with his parents murdered at Auschwitz. He was 101 years old. I was reading his story. I was reading his book, The Happiest Man on Earth. But I want to tell you about one scene. Just personally, it moved me very much. He was in Belgium, in Brussels, after the war. He lost everything. Like everybody else, he lost everybody. He had a sister that survived. He rented a flat. He got a job as a mechanical engineer. And they were sitting one night, and he was reading the newspaper. In the newspaper, he reads about two Jewish girls who were arrested and put into a mental hospital because they tried to commit suicide. What happened? They jumped off a bridge in Brussels. Now, the bridge wasn't very high, but they wanted to fall on a barge. But they missed the barge. They fell into the water. They survived. They got arrested, and they were sent into a mental institution. Eddie says, I just felt I have to help them. Now, imagine. He himself had nothing. He was, but I want to help them. Tzvei Yiddish two Jewish girls. He goes to the hospital, mental hospital. He asks to see them. He says the conditions were appalling. Horrific. He meets the two girls. He says, they're normal. They're intelligent. They're beautiful. But they were both in Auschwitz-Birkenau. Their entire families were wiped out. Everyone in their world was destroyed and murdered. They had nobody. And they simply didn't have the will to go on. They simply didn't want to live, so they decided to jump off the bridge just to take themselves out of their endless misery. He made an appointment with the chief, with the head of the hospital, and he says to them, these girls don't belong here. Besides the fact this is a horrific place, and even if you come in normal, after three months you go out mad. These girls need love. These girls need camaraderie. These girls need somebody to believe in them and help them believe they have a future. Let them come to my flat. I'm there with my sister and my friend. Let me take care of them. And the guy said, okay, take these girls. And you know what? There was a third Jewish girl, a survivor who also tried to kill herself. And he took them, he took her too. So now it was him and his friend Kurt and his sister Henny and these three Jewish girls. And he told them, listen, we're all single, no monkey business. But we have to take care of each other. He fed them. He nurtured them. He fabringed with them. He shared with them their, his story. They shared their story. And he infused them with the hope that they will yet build a beautiful life. And after a few weeks or months, they thanked him. They left. They married Jewish husbands. They built beautiful Jewish families. And he maintained a relationship with them through correspondence from Australia. And then he says, and he says, I remembered then what my father said to me because I experienced it. There's much more joy in giving than there is in taking. And at that moment, I realized that even in the darkest of moments, you can see miracles. And if you don't see miracles, then remember, 
you are the miracle. You are the one who will create the miracle. And for me, that moment, I became the miracle that saved these three Jewish girls from a death after they survived the Nazi Holocaust. For me, this is so inspiring because it captures the real power of the human spirit. Avram Jacobowitz was no, not naive. He was not living in La La Land. He saw the worst of the worst of the worst. He suffered the worst of the worst. Ultimately, he realized, he said, I, never, I will never forgive the Germans. I will never return to Germany ever. I will not touch that soil. When he was a youngster, he said, I was so proud to be a German. I was German first, German second, German third. Judaism didn't mean much. The night of Kristallnacht, he said, I lost faith in humanity, and I became embarrassed to be a German. Certain things you cannot erase. But he chose to reframe his life and ask himself, in the midst of darkness, will I be a victim, or will I become the miracle I'm looking for? Wow. This is the ultimate message of this mimer. In every circumstance, I can look for miracles outside of me. And it's great if you find them, embrace them, and run. Run with those miracles. If you don't, it must be that you're the miracle. You, your presence, your choices. Eddie Jaku chose, he says, to smile, to be polite, to love people, and to celebrate life. These are the choices we make. And in those choices that we make, we change ourselves because the X-ray is not who you are. It's who you appear to be that really makes you who you are. Or in the immortal words of Ecclesiastes, the last words of Kehelas, Soiv Davar, Hakol Nishma. At the end of the day, when everything has been heard, when all the therapy has been completed, fear God and celebrate and observe his commandments because this is what constitutes the totality of human life. Thank you very much. And now we'll take questions. So Rabbi Jacobson, uh, if anybody has any questions, please post them. I have two questions for you. Question number one. So land of, land of Jericho is your thought, speech, and action. The land of Canaan, which becomes the promised land, or your seven emotions. But what happens if God has given you even, what's the purpose of it? Does it, does it accomplish anything up on high if you have all these evil, terrible emotions? What are you accomplishing if you do subdue them? Is anything being accomplished? Why are we plagued with them? Why can't our x-rays be beautiful? Beautiful question. Beautiful question. <laughs> beautiful, pun intended. So yes, I, I want to I emphasize that. The land of Canaan is known as the land of seven nations because we're made up of seven midos. Chesed, Gvur, Teferis, Netzach, Malchus. Love, discipline, boundaries, empathy, victory, submission, Bonding and confidence, royalty. Those are the seven building blocks of the human emotional soul. The land of Canaan is a land of seven nations. That's what we want to conquer. But we can't conquer all of the seven middas and perfect them. We could conquer Jericho, which represents the three garments, thought, speech, and action, which are the reyach, the smell, the aroma. Not the inner x-ray, but what's displayed, the aroma we exude the smile we shared, or the opposite, God forbid. So here's the deal. Ultimately, our divinity will pervade all of our seven midas. But the point is you can't get frustrated if you cannot conquer that immediately, if you're being triggered in very difficult ways because I don't always have control over my inner attitudes of what's going to come up for me. You may visit a person's, you may visit a certain situation and certain things come up for you. Don't get upset at yourself. In fact, <laughs> let me tell you a little story. <laughs> There's a, I have a very close friend. He's a very important, he's a very great therapist in Muncie. So he shared with me once that there was a couple who came to him and it was always the same story. 
the, the husband would go to his wife's, to the wife's parents' home. And they made all these comments that simply drove him mad. They always had what to say to him and to his wife about their children. And he said, I just don't want to go there anymore. I can't go there for Pesach. I can't go there for Sukkot. I can't go for Hanukkah parties. I cannot deal with it. And could just get triggered. So the therapist told me, he said, I gave the guy advice, him and his wife. I said, listen, instead of going and getting frustrated, why don't you make a list of everything that your in-laws are going to say and do while you're there that is going to trigger you? Just make a list beforehand. Since you know them so well, just do a list. And then when they actually do it, then follow through. Just check off that box. And the couple did that. And they said, instead of it being a miserable experience, it became actually a skit. It became a comedy show. It became a fun adventure. It's like his father-in-law said this, check. Mother-in-law said this, check. Because they had to predict everything. It was wise advice because instead of combating a situation that won't change, you're not changing your in-laws tonight. It's not going to happen. For whatever reason, I'm not talking, I'm not judging anybody. I'm saying the facts. Instead, realize that this is part of the journey. And your choice is what you're going to do with these triggers. Are you going to start fighting back? Are you going to run out of the house? Are you going to start insulting your father-in-law, mother-in-law? Are you going to get upset at your wife? Are you going to let it out at your kids? Because you can't let it out at your mother-in-law. Or you can make a checklist, say, here we go, here we go, here we go. The lion has came, come into the room, and I'm being triggered by this delusional lion. But in my mind, it's a lion. And now I'm going to choose how to react. Now, what happens after a while is it starts changing your internal x-ray as well. The outer has a very deep impact on the inner. Not right away, not always, not with the snap of the finger but it has an impact so that one, that's why Moses' spies are also important because even though they fail, but there is a time when all the Jews will conquer the land of Israel and all the seven emotions will ultimately be transformed. And each day we get a little closer to that space of holistic healing. We're running out of time here, but just one more thing on the, uh, it speaks about the land of Canaan. It speaks about the Jericho. But it also speaks, the Rebbe speaks at the end about three other lands that are eventually going to be conquered. What is that in us? The land of Canaan is our animal soul. Jericho is our thought, speech, and action. What are those three? Or have we run out of time for that? Uh, well, <laughs> but very briefly, God promised Abraham 10 lands, seven, seven, the land of Canaan, which had seven tribes. And another three called Kedi, Knizi, Vekadmoini. In Hasidic literature, the Mittler Rebbe says that the seven tribes represent the seven emotions, which I mentioned, Chesed, Gvur, Teferis, Netzachad, Yisrael, Malchus. The three lands, the three tribes promised to Abraham for the future in the Messianic era represent the inner, inner core of consciousness known as Chachma, Bina, Das. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge, or conception, comprehension, and application, if you wish. That is yet even a deeper level of conquest where I get to the source of everything, and that's for the future. Just very briefly, tonight is Rosh Chodesh Kislev. Why don't you just elaborate what happened in Chabad on this night? Rosh Chodesh Kislev, of course, is the head of the month, the month of redemption, the month of lights, the month of Hanukkah, a great month where we shine the bright lights in the darkness of winter. In the Chabad calendar, Rosh Chodesh Kislev also assumed an extraordinary significance. This is an event that happened in the year 1977. I was a child, but I remember it. It was the middle of the Hakafos. The Lubavitcher Rebbe was dancing Shmini Atzeres at the Hakafos. Live and festive, thousands of people in shul. And the Rebbe suffered a massive heart attack. One heart attack and then another heart attack. Uh, it was very, very uh, difficult and uh, challenging situation. Uh, you know, many of the doctors did not think that naturally the devil will be able to survive this. And uh, he did. It was, they turned his, he didn't want to, he refused to go to the hospital. It was sort of interesting. He told the doc, one of the doctors who shared this with me, his name is Robert Feldman. He told the doctor, he said, look at this room. He says, this room has heard over the last 40 years, 30 years, the tears 
of hundreds of thousands of Jews. This room, the walls have absorbed the holiness, the struggles, triumphs of hundreds of thousands of Jews. If there's a place that's going to help me heal, it's going to be this room. So he stayed in the room and they turned it into a mini hospital, great doctors. And the Rebbe slowly healed. And Rosh Chodesh Kislev, it was the evening of the first day of Kislev, that the Rebbe for the first time had the energy, the fortitude to be able to leave his room. And he appeared at the entrance of 770 Eastern Parkway. Nobody has seen him besides the close people and doctors and so forth because he couldn't come out. And he walked home. And for the Hasidim and for friends and admirers and disciples of the Rebbe in New York and the world over, this was really... Uh, an incredible moment that God gave the Rebbe back to the Jewish people. And the Rebbe lived, and not only lived, the Rebbe lived for another uh, 16 years, right? 16 years. But those years, the Rebbe really didn't only double his efforts, didn't only triple his efforts, but really transformed Chabad into a global movement. And most of his initiatives happened after that. You understand? Most people after a double heart attack, close to cardiac arrest at the age of 77, you know, you buy a nice flat in Palm Beach, Florida, and a good beach chair, and you relax together with your wife, right? You go back to natural Jewish habitat, which is Florida or the Hamptons. But uh, the Rebbe at that time, he completely transformed not just the Chabad movement, but the Jewish world in empowering it with a vision to be able to grow Yiddishkeit in an unprecedented way, to build Israel in an unprecedented way, and to bring a consciousness of divinity and redemption into the whole world. So till today, Chabad Hasidim celebrate Rosh Chodesh Kislev as a day of gratitude and thanks to the Almighty for that great miracle. Rabbi Ketz, over to you. I think that uh, Rabbi Jacobson, uh, we need to say a huge, huge thank you and a big yashakayach. Um, we've heard you over many, many years, and I think like uh, good wine, it just gets better and better and better. You've inspired us. You've given us uh, keys to uh, open and to change the parts of me that we can work on. And believe me, there's a lot that uh, needs working on. But uh, a big, big yashakayach for sharing with us for giving us that uh, that insight and that passion um, that we all need. Um, over here, it's dark already, and uh, it's Kislev, but you brought a tremendous amount of light into our lives this evening. Mir Tashem will be able to take it and utilize it and use it correctly. So thank you for your time. Thank you for your passion. Thank you for your enthusiasm. And thank you for the brilliant, brilliant way that you always explain everything. It enriches us all, as it does the entire Jewish world. A big and thank you. Thank you. My love and blessings to all of you. Thank you, Rabbi Kass. Thank you, Rabbi Masinta. Thank you to all of you, my dear brothers and sisters. Chazak, chazak, venis chazak. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.